Most of you know uh, Jim Arnett's two children, Anna, Deanna. You may not know that Deanna. Uh, you may not know that he has a lot of other children. They're called Free Ministerial Scholars at Sanford University. That's his program. And let me tell you something. They are his kids. He takes this role very, very seriously. The students that are a part of the pre-ministerial scholar program are chosen very carefully. There's a long selection process. I know when that process is going on because Bill's tension level goes up. They're trying to choose uh, the best of the best to be a part of uh, this program. Our church has been fortunate to have many of those uh, young men and women who have been a part of us. And we've gotten to know them. Our preacher this morning uh, was one of those. Aaron Carr is originally from Wyoming. You may know him, though, if you came on Wednesday nights because he was almost always here on Wednesday nights. And uh, I had the great fortune of uh, eating with him almost every Wednesday night, getting to know him, kidding him a little bit. I enjoyed that. Jim had him teach several times, and if you got to hear him teach, you knew this is a very special uh, young student, uh, young scholar. He did an outstanding job. The funnest thing, though, was to see him give Jim a hard time down there. And they did that a lot on Wednesday nights. They would go at each other some, and I, I, I'm not sure who enjoyed it more. Uh, but it's great to have Aaron here. He is a graduate of Sanford University. He's a seminary student at Candler School of Theology. Did you tell me he had one more year? One more year. And uh, he's just an outstanding uh, Bible student, young man, and he'll be preaching in just a few moments. It's great to have you here as a guest preacher. Good morning. Good morning. Our scripture verse, uh, verses today are Matthew 11, 25 through 30. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's in 689. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tim told me this morning he wasn't going to do a long introduction, so... <laughs> Nice. It was lovely. Thank you. <laughs> I was. It's always good to be reminded of um, the wonderful years that I spent here as a college student and the support 
that this congregation has continued to pour into me as a seminarian and beyond that. So thank you. Thank you all for being here this morning. I know it's the 4th of July weekend. Um, I'm not sure if I should be thankful to Jim for asking me to come here or a little offended because I know the congregation's down a little bit. So maybe he wanted to make sure that I, you know, talk to fewer people. I don't know. You can ask him that yourself. <sighs> it's so great to be able to stand up here and to share these little stories and joke a little bit because it's been a long time since I've been here and coming to this church feels like coming home. It feels like being gathered around a very oddly shaped dinner table, but a dinner table nonetheless, with a great big family. And I am so excited to be here. But what would any great big family gathering be without some kind of crazy confession from a long absent family member? I realize, saying those words out loud, that confession probably isn't the best way to start a sermon, but don't worry, this is not confession in the tradition of the televangelists of the past few decades in which I reveal some great moral feeling to you, nor is this confession in the Roman Catholic sense of the word. In all honesty, my confession isn't really that exciting, but I want it to seem more exciting, so I'm going to hype it up for a few more seconds before I finally reveal to you what it is. Really, if, you know, only if you hold the sort of the strictest, most inflexible standards of what it means to be masculine in American culture will you even find this an odd thing to say, but here it is. The inspiration for today's sermon came from the website known as Pinterest. <laughs> there it is. Some of you know what I'm talking about and why that's funny. In the strictest and most literal sense of the word, um, this sermon is inspired by Pinterest because I stole the sermon title directly from the website. Um, in fact, the image on the front of our bulletins is very similar to the pin that I found one afternoon during finals week, when I was actively procrastinating the power nap that I should have been taking to prepare me for the test, but I was on Pinterest instead. Some of you know how that goes. On a slightly more profound level, however, this sermon was inspired not just by the actual things on Pinterest, but the culture that surrounds the website and the people who frequent it. See, I had known about this website for a long time, but I only finally signed up for an account last summer when I learned that it wasn't just for people who were looking for low-calorie, raw, vegan-free, organic <laughs> wedding cakes, but also for people who are interested in building things with wood, baking cookies that actually had, like, real bacon in it, and other things that start with B, and I can't mention from the As I began building my account and organizing these pins, I quickly discovered, however, that Pinterest has a darker side, which sounds absurd now that I say it out loud, but it does. Hang with me for just a second. While I had, and continue to have, absolutely no problem pinning ideas or projects that I know I won't accomplish for decades, mostly due to the fact that woodworking tools are really, really expensive, I discovered <laughs> people who felt guilty about having these digital boards full of ideas that they hadn't yet accomplished. There are entire articles on, on the internet, gigabytes of data devoted to tips, teaching you not how to actually do the things, but how to motivate yourself to do the things, or how to organize yourself to do the things. This, this whole secondary Pinterest market in motivating you to do Pinterest the right way. Worse than this, though, is a sense, a palpable sense of disappointment that I could feel in my friends and my family when a project that they attempted didn't line up with the stunningly beautiful, lovingly crafted, flawlessly photoshopped ideas that they had seen on Pinterest. 
we laugh because it's a bit silly, but the phenomenon became devastatingly real for me back in December when my wife and I got our wedding photos back for the first time. My wife grew to dislike and actively hate some of our wedding photos because they didn't match up with what she had expected based on the things that she had seen on Pinterest. Now, to be fair to my wife, there were some legitimate reasons not to like those wedding photos. <laughs> Leanna had gotten a cold that week, and it's evident in the pictures. My face seizes up after about half an hour of smiling, so for most of the photos that I look like I'm in pain rather than enjoying myself, and I don't have enough time to, to recount to you all of the snafus that happened that weekend that, despite the best efforts of our wedding planner, wound up in our ears, stressing us out to no end. But you know, it's what happens when you refuse to buy into the wedding industrial complex of this country and do a lot of things on your own. We were stressed out, and it's reflected in our wedding photos. But around Christmas time, when we finally saw the things that had been produced by our photographer, we were also contending with the expectations generated by Pinterest. Leanna was legitimately hurt because our photos, and let me say this in case our photographer ever hears this sermon, they were good photos. They were wonderful, <laughs> wonderful photos that reflect the events that actually happened that day. But they didn't look like the airbrush perfection that you can find on Pinterest. Test me on this, you guys. Go home, log on to the website, and do a search for weddings. You will find more ideas than you could possibly even comprehend in like half a second. And some of these pins will be humorous reflections on weddings gone awry, and they are really funny. But most of them are pictures of impossibly beautiful people at impossibly beautiful weddings that cost impossible amounts of money and have been impossibly photoshopped to reflect our culture's notion of perfection. And teenagers have these things. Teenagers, not even old enough to date, let alone marry, spend years assembling boards that reflect what they want to do in their weddings that may or may not even ever happen. For decades, sometimes, they imbibe perfection. All of this, all of this being <coughs> imported into people's lives, all is perfection. And so we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on weddings trying to make it look perfect even though we know it's not perfect. Or when our very real lives fail to meet the perfect standards that we've come to expect, we become disappointed or disillusioned. Somehow we failed by not living up to Pinterest expectations. What an absurd notion. We used to call it keeping up with the Joneses, but we're not talking about neighbors anymore. We're talking about the entire internet. What's more, you don't need to be a newlywed or an avid Pinterester to know how deep this problem goes in the modern Western world. If you understood my reference to keeping up with the Joneses, you know that this has been a problem for several generations. We exist in a culture that demands perfection, that demands an unceasing facade of perfection, rather. We here in the southeastern United States perhaps know this better than anyone, given that our culture more accurately resembles 18th century British aristocracy than the modern American West. How many of you have spent hours cleaning the house because a neighbor was going to come over that afternoon to return a casserole dish? <laughs> How many of you have canceled plans because the house wasn't clean enough or you didn't have the right outfit to wear? How many of you apologize for the mess, and by mess you mean normal wear and tear of an active household, that you know, is present when friends come to visit. 
How many of you have agonized over conversations with your boss or with coworkers that didn't go the way that you expected? How many of you have missed important family milestones for the sake of getting ahead at work or making another sale? All of these things to appear perfect to the world. Into all of this insanity, thank God, speaks the calm and gentle voice of Jesus. Rest, it whispers. Rest, find rest for your weary souls. And we think, yeah, rest. That sounds like a great idea. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. But we want to do it on our own terms. Julie Pennington Russell, the pastor of First Baptist Church Decatur, where Nana is currently leading worship, tells a great story that illustrates this point exactly. Several years ago, Julie was preparing to go on a retreat in the American Southwest. And she was really excited about it because she'd never been on a retreat before. And she was so excited that she was telling her Roman Catholic friend about the events of that, that were about to transpire. And the Catholic friend got very excited with her as well. She said, oh, that's great, a retreat. How long are you going to be gone? Two weeks? Four weeks? <laughs> Julie was kind of taken aback by all of the two weeks. What are you talking about? But the friend continued to ask questions. What kind of retreat are you going on? Will it be guided? Will it be silent? Will it be meditation? What's it going to look like? And Julie was taken aback even more and was chagrined to admit to her friend that the retreat would only last for three days, and it was, in fact, a working retreat. Because this is how we treat rest in America. Rest always has to have a purpose, a goal. Rest is always conspiring with culture to push us on towards impossible perfection. We rest so that we can be more focused at work. We take a retreat only because we know that in the wilderness, away from Wi-Fi or whatever it is, there's a razor-sharp zone of focus that we can get into and we can accomplish so much while we're on retreat. And we don't just limit it to long periods of rest, like weekends or weeks. We have working lunches. We have working vacations. If we can figure out a way to do working naps, we probably do those too, in all honesty. It's a very utilitarian way of looking at rest, a point of view that emphasizes the lack of distraction and the increase in productivity that resting can somehow provide for us. But is it a Christian way to look at rest? I have to confess that I don't think it is, or at the very least, it doesn't appear to be how Jesus is describing rest in this passage. My yoke is easy, he says. My burden is light. Come and find rest for your souls. I don't know about you, friends, but I cannot believe that rest for my soul continues according to the manic, pseudo-perfect pace that the world sets for us. I cannot believe that the unfailing lightness of Jesus' burden requires continued productivity for me. In fact, if I were completely honest with you, I'd say that rest, real Sabbath, jubilee kind of rest requires an actual decline in productivity, a willingness to stop our grasping attempts at Pinterest-esque perfection and simply be. In the words of Barbara Brown Taylor, once a week you're supposed to quit being good for anything, except your creatureliness. But this kind of rest scares us, and I think it probably should. It's hard to stop all of our momentum and simply rest. It's hard to justify, to our modern minds anyway, activity that doesn't have some goal in mind. It's hard to fall out of the system for even a minute, to slow production, 
to reduce profits. We're afraid, I think, because, as Barbara Brown Taylor again points out, a decline in productivity, rest, is a practice in death. Productivity is the sort of universal means of valuing one another. She says that it cashes out in dollars and fame, but it cashes out in other ways. It's to be productive, to produce. Without our universal metric, how are we supposed to measure ourselves? How are we supposed to measure others? If, as the great cartoonist Bill Watterson once claimed, society's only measure of human worth is a job title and a salary, how does the system deal with those who choose to refuse a new title and a higher salary to preserve <coughs> sacred and holy spaces of rest in their lives? Again, another confession. I have to tell you that for a long time while I was working on this sermon, I was very uncomfortable with the direction that Jesus was calling me. Christianity is, after all, the religion of Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez and Eleanor Roosevelt. From the very beginning, ours has been a religion of rebels and activists. Our faith has fueled mass actions like the March on Washington and has been the quiet strength in the hearts of millions who have daily stood against injustice in the world. Those of you who know me even a little bit know that my faith tends towards that aspect of Christianity. And for a long time, I wrestled with this text, and I shouted at Jesus, what would the world look like if Martin Luther King had rested, or if Caesar Chavez had rested, or if Eleanor Roosevelt had rested? What would the world look like in terms of civil rights, in terms of human rights? What would have happened? But then it hit me. In the modern West, in a society driven by production and economics, rest is quite possibly the most subversive thing that we as Christians can do. By refusing to buy into the system, by refusing to be productive, by carving out even one day a week during which we can't earn anything, we are in some small way, diminishing the powers that make this American empire of ours run. You are declaring that your life is not something to be bought and sold on a commodities market. You are declaring that there is something more important than your ability to earn a dollar. You are declaring what God has been declaring since the very beginning of this entire enterprise. The world was not made to be consumed. The world was made to be enjoyed, and the world was made to rest. In middle January, after Leanna and I returned from our honeymoon and dealt with some of the things that come with being newlyweds and also um, dealt with a car accident, um, we finally had this chance to sit down with some of our most important friends and family in our lives and talk to them about the wedding. Resting around the table, we were able to drop any aspirations to perfection and simply talk about the day as it had been. To our, or at least Leanna's, absolute amazement, our friends and family began to share little details about the ceremony and the reception that had moved them and that had meant something to them. Some of, some of them even shared their personal pictures with us and we continue to treasure those memories. But something else happened in those conversations 
resting around the table. We began to look more fondly on the, on the professional pictures that had been taken for us as well. When we stopped striving for the unattainable perfection symbolized by things like Pinterest, we saw the actual beauty in what we had done. We saw the joining of two lives and the celebration of Holy Communion. We saw the coming together of friends, old and new. In short, we saw the day as it really was. Yes, there was some snot on a few noses, runny mascara on a few eyes, and chili that landed on more than a few suits at the wedding reception. But that was life. That's what happened. Real life. Not the glossy magazine cover shoot Pinterest kind of life, but the kind of life that gets stuffed into an old photo album. While we were striving for Pinterest level perfection, we were disappointed. But when we were able to rest, we rejoiced in what we found there. Friends, Jesus rested. Jesus took naps. And even in first century Palestine, his naps were such a radical activity that they struck fear into the heart of his disciples. So, in memory of the mighty act of napping, enacting Jesus' promise of finding rest in a spirit of rebellion against Pinterest and perfection, go home and take a nap. <laughs> Let something slide off the to-do list this afternoon. Don't return that call until Monday. Take time this afternoon to simply be and don't do anything. Bathe in rays of golden sun or look up at the twinkling stars in the night sky. Share a cold beverage with a loved one. Rest without any goal other than resting. Rest secure in the knowledge that God is remaking the world into a place where all one day a week, pop out. Practice a new economics. Economics of rest. Don't be good for anything. Just be. And for God's sake, in all seriousness, follow the example of our Lord Jesus.